But uh, we're going to get in the Word today. We're continuing our series in 1 John. Uh, we're going through the, the letters of John in the New Testament, um, talking about finding assurance. How can we know in our core that we are Christ's? And so we're going we're gonna to talk about that, um, but let's pray before we, we dive into it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. We thank you for the heat in this room <laughs> that allows us to concentrate. And uh, Lord, we pray, God, that um, I just think of in the cold, if there are people suffering because of this weather, Lord, that uh, outside of us, outside of this circle, Lord, you just provide and, and, uh, and comfort and uh, bring warmth. Um, Lord, we pray over the message today, God, that you would speak to us. Um, as we talk about what your word says in really plain language. Um, we, uh, we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, th this week in world news, there was a 26-year-old man named Drew Marshall who got 12 months community service in London, England. And you're wondering, why are you talking about that? It seems pretty minor. Well, what happened was he was convicted of trying to sell an antler walking stick on eBay. And he claimed that this antler walking stick belonged to Queen Elizabeth II. Um, he said he was a footman at Windsor Castle, which wasn't true. He said that the money from this sale uh, was going to go towards cancer research, also not true. Um, he, he had the bidding up to 540 pounds which, if you don't know what a pound is, I saw the, I did the, the math here, about 700 bucks. I had it on, 700 bucks on eBay before the police found out, intervened, and they got him. So, this is what the prosecutor said. Drew Marshall used the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II to try and hoodwink the public with fake charity, at, at, with a fake charity auction, fueled by greed and a desire for attention. Marshall's scheme was ultimately foiled before he could successfully con any suspecting victims. First of all, I love how love the language British people use in their public. And I haven't heard hoodwink um, in in a while. But this guy Drew Marshall was found out. He was found out as a fraud. And the moral of the story is that there are some people who still use eBay. Um, <laughs> not really. Uh, the moral of the story is that not everything you see is genuine. Not everything you see is genuine. Not everyone is genuine. That there are still people in the world trying to make money through lies. And there are still people in the world presenting something that is untrue. We see it all the time. How many calls do you turn off on your cell phone? How many spam calls do we get? So as we turn to the book of 1 John today, we're going to see this is also true when it comes to faith. This is what John talks about. Last week we talked about John is a witness, and a witness, a genuine witness of Christ, and now there's some challenge um, where, where, uh, where John challenges us by saying that not all faith is genuine. Just because someone claims Christ doesn't mean they're actually following him. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. How can we, as Christ followers, avoid fraudulent faith? How can we be genuine in our faith? And I want to say, John doesn't give us a grid to judge other people. We're not going to go around the room and say, you're, you're, uh, you're a fraud, uh, you, you have real faith. 
His goal is to get us to examine our own lives and say, am I living truly for Christ from my whole self? And so what John wants us to avoid is the religious trap of living a lie. What we're going to do is we're going to read 1 John 1, uh, 5 through 2, verse 2 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there, or we'll have it up on the screen. This is what it says. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. I think it's helpful that as we look at a passage like this, which talks a lot about sin, I think it's really important that we look at for the motive, the reason why John is writing it. And I think it's found in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. So John isn't coming from a point where he's trying to condemn us. John is coming from a point to lovingly warn us and lead us towards a life that's fully connected to Christ. He says, my dear children, that's how, that's the tone that John uses for this whole letter. My dear children, he writes in love. He comes to the church in love. And he doesn't write to condemn, but he writes to bring conviction that would lead to life change. See, God isn't out to condemn us. God is out to convict us, to lead us towards the truth. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction, right? Condemnation means you're bad and it's over. Conviction means I want to help you grow. Love is at the heart of conviction. When you feel God's conviction in your life, that's a sign that God loves you. He doesn't want to leave you where you're at. He wants you to grow in him. So God convicts us to lead us to a point of repentance, of change. And John wants us to understand something about ourselves, that we are sinners. John wants to start with that reality. The reality of Scripture is that we are sinners that we have fallen short of the glory of God, and that we need someone to save us. And I was thinking about this idea of sin, and I feel like just culturally, we're getting less and less comfortable with the sin conversation, that we're actually sinners. Do people still see themselves as sinners? 
My theory is that the reason why Billy Graham and the Crusades, that kind of stuff, not, not the Crusades, the Billy Graham Crusades, <laughs> Let's, those are the same category, not going back. Why the Billy Graham Crusades worked is because deep down a lot of people had this idea of sin. Like at some point, I'm going to have to get right with God. And maybe over the last 50 years, that sort of eroded. We've sort of drifted from that cultural idea of sin and evil. I feel like maybe back in the day, if you were a rebel, there was kind of this understanding like you weren't right with God. Like, I know maybe we shouldn't talk about this song in church, but who knows the ACDC song, Highway to Hell? All right? You know that song's kind of theologically correct, right? Like, that's like a, oh, that's not a great song. But, but if you think about it, what are they doing? They're recognizing the reality of sin. They're also recognizing the reality that sin distances us from God, right? So there's kind of this cultural, was this cultural understanding of, like, rebellion. There's a, you know, we rebel against God. We're separated from God. I'm not telling you to listen to that song, okay? We're not going to start incorporating that song in church. But, um, but it just, I think, I think maybe there's been some drift, uh, CBS reported this week that 30% of American adults have no religious affiliation today. So that's 30%, which, which is probably higher in our neck of the woods. Um, so more people are trending towards atheism, altruism, or humanism. And there's even an organization called the American Humanist Association. And their slogan is, good without a god. It's like, we can be good without a God. We don't need a God to help us be good. And I was thinking, maybe that captures the spirit of the times that we live in. You know, we can be good. We don't need a God to be good. Uh, we can be good on our own. What's striking about that statement, if I can flip this, here we go. What's striking about that statement is like, that is the exact definition of self-righteousness. <laughs> self-righteousness says, I can be good without a God. I can be good on my own. I am good because I declare it. I declare myself to be good. See, I think we might think of self-righteousness as like acting like we're better than other people or other people are acting like they're better than us. But at its core, what self-righteousness is, is believing that we are inherently good and that we don't need help from God. So, and if you think about it, we kind of, we kind of live in a self-righteous culture. If you think about how many people are attacked online today, right? Just go on Twitter. You'll see, you'll see this dynamic. Um, you guys know the actor Rob Lowe? Right? Rob Lowe, he said this recently. He said, what's the point of being famous anymore, right? Because people are lying in wait. It's like you do one thing wrong and people are ready to jump. I wonder if that tells us that we live in an age that's kind of self-righteous. Do we think glowingly of ourselves and yet have our knives out towards others? So all that to say, church, it's time for us to rediscover what God's word has to say about sin. Let's be grounded in what God's truth has to say about sin, to really know and ground ourselves in that biblical reality, God's word. What does God say about us? And this is the bad news before the good news, right? 
The truth is you're a sinner, but guess what? Jesus has come to save you, but we got to start with that first part. Do we believe in sin? Because John makes it clear, it's vitally important that we understand what sin is and that we avoid it. When we understand that we are sinners in need of grace, we avoid the trap of self-righteousness and fraudulent faith. So John begins this passage by declaring that God is light. God is light. And in him there is no darkness. So what that means when he says God is light is that God is holy, that God is truth, and that God is good. That all good things come from God. God is light. And so John always contrasts God and the world as light and darkness. When Jesus entered the world, he brought light into a dark place. Christ is the light that entered a dark world. And this world's been made dark because of sin. Now, sin isn't just like a bad decision that we make. It's, it's bigger than that. We live under the curse of sin. Um, Dr. James Efford says, Sin is that which is in opposition to God's benevolent purposes for his creation. According to the biblical writers, sin is an ever-present reality that enslaves the human race and has corrupted God's created order. So that's the biblical definition of sin, that God is light, and he alone is holy and good, and we live in a world that's been marred by this dark reality. So apart from God, we live in the darkness. It's an ever-present reality, and that's why Jesus came into the world. In this next verse, John gets a little more personal. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We lie and do not live out the truth. So what he's saying is, if our lives are truly touched by God, our lives should change. There should be change in our lives. Let's go back to the, the Billy Graham moment. A lot of people prayed to receive Christ. But is that all there is to it? That's a moment of change, but then it has to be followed up with actual life change. So the short answer is no. It's, it's a genuine moment of salvation, but it also has to be followed by life transformation. Your heart must change. Your life must change. The truth is we can't, full, we can't meet Jesus and just keep living the same way. There must be change. Following Jesus means walking in the light. And I, I want you to hear me correctly. I'm not saying that if, if, that, that, uh, if we pray to receive Christ, we aren't saved. We are. But what, what, um, the proof of that faith is when we walk in obedience to God, when we keep going. And so this is my first point this morning, is that our witness always involves our words and our walk. Our words and our walk, our, our words and our deeds, they should be best buddies. They should be best buddies. They should, they should be together, arm in arm. Uh, these are words and our actions. Like has to, they have to match. And this is what John's getting at, that we would walk in the light. And so we bear witness to Christ all the time in all of our life. All of our life is about bearing witness to Christ. He was never meant to be part of our life. He was meant to be the whole of our life because he came to be Lord. He came to be the one directing us. 
and, and the one that we surrender to. And he's Lord of our whole life. Now, as John continues in verse 7, he gets into how does the light of Christ impact community? And it is profound. And I've quoted this verse before because I love it, and it's so important that we get what John's saying in verse 7. It says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. What I want to focus on there is that we have fellowship with one another because of what Christ has done. That through the blood of Christ, one of the signs of transformation is that we pull towards each other, not away from each other. Is that we actually pull towards each other in love and not away from each other. That, that Jesus, we talked about last week, Jesus came to break down walls between people. That when Jesus was preaching, when Jesus was in ministry, when, when he sent out the church, Jesus was breaking through racial walls all around him. All around him. And one of the amazing witnesses of the early church was the fact that you had Greeks and Jews and Romans and all these groups of people that hated each other before were now unified in Christ. And that multicultural dynamic needs to continue into today. That's what, that's what heaven looks like, is people from every culture and background together because Christ has broken down walls. Christ has broken down walls. So any kind of, of disdain that we would feel towards a person or a group of people is not from God, is not from God. Christ brings us together in his blood. We have fellowship with each other. So the church is a place that brings people together under the blood of Christ. Fraudulent faith would be one that blesses God and curses other people. Right? We are called to be a people of blessing. And so we move towards love towards each other. And we look to invite people in. What we see is that, the, the, that Christ calls us out of our isolation and Christ turns outsiders into family, strangers into family through the blood of Christ. I was thinking about this this week. Um, Bonnie and I attended a celebration of life service for our friend uh, Karen, who when we first moved to Whatcom County in 2012, we didn't really know anybody, and we moved, we got on this six-month lease with this little apartment, and we thought we were going to buy a house. Uh, we thought we were going to buy a house, and, and it, was, uh, it was a foreclosure. We were getting a screaming deal on this house. 2012, we were buying a four-bedroom house for $200,000 in Ferndale. This was going to be a screaming deal. But then it, the financing fell through. Things just start, stopped uh, working, and, and it fell through. And so we had already put our notice in on our apartment, and we were like, what are we going to do? We have a two-year-old. We have a baby on the way. And we had nowhere to go. And so I didn't know a lot of people, but I knew Bruce and Karen, and I knew that Karen was super hospitable. <laughs> so I said, hey, Karen, what do you think about us uh, living in your basement? Just for a month, you know. And she said, yes. And they let us move into their, their basement, and uh, they fed us dinner, and they were super kind and loving towards us. And that one month turned into two months, 
turned into three months, turned into four months, turned into five months, and we actually, uh, John Tyler was born while we were living in their basement. Talk about grace. Not only that, John Tyler was born on the same night that Karen retired from her job. So it was like these two upstairs, downstairs parties going on. Uh, it, was, it was crazy. It was crazy. When, and, uh, but so kind. And I say that to say, like, man, that's hospitality. You know, that's Christ making outsiders insiders, bringing people in. We weren't related to these people. We only knew them for a few months. But how much kindness is that to just let, let us in? So, uh, so don't be surprised if you get a call this week from some, some young couple looking for a place to stay. That could be God working on your heart. But Christ always leads us towards fellowship with each other. So in verse 8, John moves to the heart of the issue. He says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the, this is the turning point right here. This is the turning point. The difference between fraudulent faith and authentic faith, it hinges on one word in this whole passage, and that word is confess. If we confess, not if we live perfectly, not if we do everything right, but if we just confess, if we believe, if we agree with God that we've sinned and that we need his help, that, that's it. That's the dividing line. Will we own it? Will we own the fact that we're sinners? Will we own our imperfections and failures before God? Or will we keep on deceiving ourselves, telling ourselves we're good? We're good without a God. So confession here is everything. Confession here is everything. I just said it, but just to put it simply, to confess is to agree with God that you are a sinner. That's it. That's where the, the prayer of salvation starts, right? It goes from the bad news to the good news. And we say, God, I confess that I'm a sinner, that I need help. So it's that word, confession. You know, as a parent, when my kids hurt each other, when my boys punch each other, which happens more than I would like it to, um, it's important that they agree that what they did was wrong, right? I'm not looking for them to just, you know, rub the shoulder of their brother. I'm looking for an agreement that what they did was wrong. We say things like, can't you see that that hurt your brother, right? Was that the right way to handle your anger? We want to bring our kids to a point of agreeing that, that hitting or lashing out in anger is wrong. And then out of that point of agreement, I want them to apologize to their brother. Our authentic relationship with God starts at a point of confession. I've done wrong, and I need you to save me. God wants us to step out of denial and into confession. We start walking in the light when we confess the darkness. And so that is where freedom is. Freedom comes when we recognize that we need Christ. 
and he is more than happy to forgive us and bring us to a place where we are restored in him. Denial does not lead us into freedom. Denial about the things in our lives that are dark does not lead us into freedom. Confession, bringing these things into the light does lead us to freedom and powerful freedom. The truth is, Jesus had some tough things to say to people who thought they were righteous on their own, right? If you read through the New Testament, uh, Jesus brings good news to the poor. Jesus is with the brokenhearted. Jesus calls up blue-collar fishermen to be his disciples. But the one group that he fought with time and time again were religious leaders who thought they were good on their own. In this case, in Matthew 3, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he had some pretty harsh words for them. Uh, he says in Matthew 3, 7, But when, many, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers. That's pretty strong, right? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? His instruction to them is, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You need to reframe the way you think. You're not here to prove yourself to God. You're not here to prove that you're better than anybody else. You are supposed to produce fruit by keeping with repentance. If you think about what he's saying is that your self-righteousness has made you like a viper. It makes you bite other people. Right? I mean, it makes you uh, hurtful to others when you think you're good on your own. And so what does he tell them to do? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That this confession, this repentance, which is a continual thing for us, is going to produce fruit in your life. It's going to produce fruit. And it's going to produce in us the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is named in Galatians. The fruit that God wants us to bear are things like love, joy, peace. I could read the whole nine, nine, uh, nine yards. Uh, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And those come when we keep in repentance, when we are honest before God. When we take the darkness and we expose it and we let God go to work on our hearts, these are the things that come out. And that only happens when we prune that darkness out, when we're real about it. So the Pharisees and Sadducees were unwilling to repent. They were too proud. In their minds, they had worked themselves past any need to confess. They were already good. But what Christ is teaching is that anybody who's a Christian needs to keep in step with repentance, needs to practice confession, that this isn't just a one-time thing, that this is a continual practice that we dive into with each other. And if we don't practice confession, we're in danger of becoming frauds, of hiding, of hiding things. And what would be really bad is if a church didn't practice confession, and a church thought it was good, it could become a brood of vipers. And I'd never want that to happen. I'm sorry for this note problem I've had. Um... Yeah, there we go. Okay. Maybe those, those, <laughs> those, um, you know, what, what does biting look like? 
in, in a group of people. It looks like slander. It looks like gossip. It looks like cursing instead of blessing, right? And, and I never want to be that. And when we inevitably mess up, because we all do, right? The, James talks about the tongue being a fire, sets a forest ablaze. I've set a couple forests ablaze before. Um, you know, the way out is saying, I'm sorry. I messed up. I sinned. This was my fault. And that's humbling, but, but that is the only way out. The only way out is through confession, through owning it. And so this is what I want you to see this morning, is that confession keeps us in an authentic place with God and each other. Confession keeps us in a real place where we see each other, where we can continue to care for each other when we're not hiding. So you may be wondering, like, what does that look like at church? Because that seems pretty awkward. And I will tell you, I'm not going to have everybody come up at the end and confess today if you're worried about that. Um, I'll encourage you to share with somebody uh, at the end, but I'm not going to force anybody to come up and confess, uh, at least right now. Maybe next week. We'll see how, how it's going. Um, but, but no, like, what, how do we actually practice this in community? And, and Jesus actually teaches to this. Jesus actually talks about how this looks like, what this actually looks like in community. You know, he says in uh, Matthew 5, 23, he talks about coming into a worship gathering and having something, coming in and there's some tension between you and somebody else. There's an unspoken thing, a, a rift that's there. He's like, when, and so the image is coming into worship and you see somebody and there's immediately like that, oh, uh-oh. Like, I did something wrong feeling. Um, and, and this is what Jesus says. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. This is how important confession is before God. God wants our worship to be 100% authentic. And if, and if uh, we don't practice um, reconciliation, forgiveness, confession, love in this space, then our worship can't be 100% authentic. And I, I've, I've had this happen. I know this from experience, that the, our first act of worship for God, the worship that God cares about is that we would, we would sacrifice and humble ourselves before somebody else. Be like, I messed up, and I'm really sorry. And I can tell you, there's nothing more beautiful than reconciliation. When hurts are forgiven, when things are spoken, that's beautiful. And God works powerfully in those moments when we say something, when we reconcile, when we see each other, eye to eye. Now, maybe the person you need to apologize on Sunday mornings to is your spouse, right? <laughs> maybe you had a hard time getting up, getting ready. Uh, maybe you argued all the way to church, and then once you walked in the door, you put that smile on your face. That ever happened, guys? <laughs> huh? Anybody? Then that would be the first person you need to reconcile with right? 
We don't just like put on a show when we get to church. We're real, even with our own spouse and our kids. God's not wanting us to yell, our, yell the whole way to church and then put on a happy face and worship him. We, we worship him from the time we get up Sunday morning. How am I going to love my family? How am I going to love my kids? And if I got an issue, even if I'm late and I'm in the parking lot with my wife, we got to figure it out before we walk in the doors. I mean, 1 Peter 3 talks about how God's unwilling to listen to our prayers. Our prayers are hindered if, if uh, we aren't honoring our, if husbands aren't honoring their wives, right? It hinders prayers. God cares that much about relationships. He, if we want a healthy vertical relationship, we got to have healthy horizontal relationships. Like, it's a whole package. It's a whole package. So all that said, we worship God when we confess, when we humble ourselves, when we, it's humbling, you know, to say I was wrong, but it brings honor to God. So as we close this morning, we're going to turn towards chapter two, and chapter two is where the good news is. Chapter two is where we find our strength and our source of life in verses one and two. And so I want you to know this, we're going to read this again, but I want you to know that God wants nothing more than to forgive you. He wants nothing more. He doesn't hold it out here. He offers it like this. Christ wants nothing more than to forgive you. God wants nothing more than to restore your relationships between each other. God wants nothing more than you to experience a healthy, vibrant life and community where people see you and you see other people. And God wants nothing more than to transform your life. John says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So yes, you're a sinner, but you have a savior. You have an advocate. Think about it like a courtroom. You have an advocate, and you have an accuser. The enemy is your accuser. The enemy wants to label you as a fraud, right? The enemy wants to bring you down, but Jesus in the courtroom of our lives is not our accuser. He is our advocate, right? And in my life, I've experienced labels like, oh, I've got to overcome this weakness, right? I've, I've had these labels, right, on my own heart. God's been working on my life, working on my, on my heart. You know, these, self, these labels we give yourself, like coward or slanderer or weak or dirty, those are labels that we put on ourselves. And Christ removes those labels. And he gives us a new label in Christ. We are not cowards. We are conquerors in Christ. That we are not slanderers. We are a blessing to others. We speak love and truth to others. We are not weak in Christ. We're strong. And we're no longer dirty, but the blood of Christ has washed us clean. So if you're living under one of those labels, you need to know that that's your accuser talking to you. And that Jesus is your advocate. Jesus wants to transform your life. And so embrace the work of Christ in your life. That you were a sinner. You were in darkness. 
but Jesus has brought you into the, into the light. That doesn't depend on anything you do other than agreeing with God. You don't have to earn that. You are given that when you follow Christ. So keep walking towards him. Keep confessing. Keep walking towards each other in love. That's authentic Christianity. That's real. So as the worship team comes, I just want to offer this. We're going to stand and worship this morning. We're going to stand and worship. But if you feel like you need to pray with someone, there are a lot of friendly people in this room that if you tapped on their shoulder would pray with you. You can pray with me. If you need to share something, if you feel prompted, I want you to feel free to have the space to do that this morning. But I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to jump into worship. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, but that I'm also saved. And Jesus, I thank you for saving me. I thank you for rescuing me from the life that I was living, from the path I was headed down. And thank you for bringing me into the light. Lord, and so I thank you for this community, God. I pray that we would be a community just full of the love of God, full of the peace of God. Lord, that if there's any labels over our hearts, God, that you would quiet them by the blood of Christ in our life, that we would find forgiveness, that we would find freedom, that we would find joy uh, wherever the darkness lies in our hearts right now, God, that you would just continue to free us. This is a process, and you have grace and patience for us in the process, in the work, in the tough moments of life. We praise you and thank you that you say your mercies are new every morning. It might have been a dark night, but your mercies are new every morning. So help us to step into those. Help us to live free. Help us to live free before you and before each other. Lord, give us more love for each other. Give us more love for you and give us more love for this community, God. We open ourselves to you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, let's stand together and worship. And don't forget at 1130, we're going to have our next vision conversation.